it's actually less risky. It is a more responsible way to do what they're entrusted to do, which is to support the business, and the business increasingly requires more nimbleness, more frequent changes. You can do that while improving quality, improving your uptime, not having outages due to, you know, some manual testing failing to catch something that if you'd automate it, you could run a hundred times more. Hi and welcome to another Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield, and today I have the pleasure of having Hayden Lindsay from Broadcom in the studio with me. Now, Hayden is the Vice President of Worldwide Engineering and Architecture for Mainframe Division. Hayden, thanks for joining me. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Des. Appreciate it. Now, I'd love to dive into uh, your role uh, heading up the whole uh, engineering architecture side of the Mainframe Division. Um, it sounds like an amazing role. Uh, but before we do that, I wonder if you'd mind just giving us a little uh, bit of background in yourself uh, for listeners just to get to know you, maybe just a little bit of background around where you're originally from, where you grew up. Any fun highlights around your academic and career path that sort of got you to where you are today? Well, as some listeners may be able to tell, uh, I live in San Francisco, but I'm not a native. I grew up in North Carolina and uh, went to University of North Carolina Chapel Hill uh, I then worked for IBM in Research Triangle Park, which is near Chapel Hill and Raleigh and Durham. For Well, I worked with IBM for 33 years, but I moved out here uh, four years ago. So the last three years at IBM, I was, well, I was out here, but I had labs around the world, including in Silicon Valley. So that was all, all good. But, uh, yeah, I joined CA in April of last year, and then, much to my surprise, three months later, the Broadcom acquisition was announced. But uh, it's been, you know, after my initial shock about a prim primarily hardware networking company buying buying a so mainframe software company and distributed software company, it's turned out to be uh, fabulous. But uh, back to the to my background, I. The little fun fact, I was going to UNC, that's University of North Carolina, basketball games since I was six years old and football games since I was 10. I still have season tickets to both, but thank God for StubHub. Uh, since I don't get out there that often, I can at least unload my tickets when my kids or friends aren't going. But I'm, I'm a very passionate uh, college basketball and football fan and Unfortunately, sometimes my wife has to remind me that the announcers and the players and coaches cannot hear me when I'm shouting at the television, but, you know, it makes me feel better. <laughs> oh, that's genius. Reminds me of that meme of the old man shouting at clouds, which is what I get abused of all the time. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, but, wow. Uh, I had a, had a great career at IBM and was one of the interesting things is, you know, nowadays everybody, for the most part, is talking about doing agile or lean or that type of more iterative software. But I was fortunate enough to be exposed to small talk and object technology and the early thought leaders around iterative development back in the mid to late 80s. And I was actually teaching seminars 
on iterative development, what you now call agile, you know, 30 years ago. And, you know, it, it's, it was interesting and novel back then. It's, I'm very happy to see that it's become mainstream and the, which we'll get into this, but one of the exceptions to that, of course, is with some of our mainframe clients that still tend to do what we would call waterfall or some variant of that. But, you know, everybody else, that that's the norm. And I think that's something that over, when you look back over a career, seeing the progress that's being made collectively by the industry, you know, that's something that's certainly a positive. Wow. Well, that's an amazing background to uh, bring to this challenging role. And, um, you know, the, the comment with regard to the acquisition, it was, it seems like everyone sort of had that initial sticker shock of, of what does this mean? And then uh, all of your peers, everyone that I've had on the show uh, with a similar experience has said the same thing. It's like, this is, this has been a great thing in the end, in the end it's, and, and, and yeah, these things can go two ways, of course, but this seems to be a, a very natural fit in many ways that people might not have originally thought. Um, now your overall role, you've, you've done an amazing amount of travel and you, you mentioned early before we started recording, you were even here in Australia recently in Sydney and Canberra and, and Melbourne. And, uh, I had to laugh when you said we got similar traffic nightmares that uh, you have here, just uh, probably a little bit smaller because we've only got 25 million people, but, uh, um, we've got all the usual modern challenges, but Vice President of Worldwide Engineering of Architecture, uh, Engineering and Architecture for the Mainframe Division. I mean, that's a, a very broad title, it seems to me. Um, what, what, is a, what is a day in the life of Hayden Lindsay like uh, these days with, with that title, you know, job title itself and the, the remit that you have? Well, so the engineering piece or what, you know, I would call software development, I'm responsible for the products that we build. And so we have labs around the world. Um, we've got three primary labs in the United States and then a couple of smaller ones also in the U.S. We've got our very largest lab is in Prague. And um, we still have some folks in a lab in Hyderabad, although that's one where we're, uh, we're going to leave that to be predominantly uh, the enterprise software division, which is the rest of what was CA. That's the other division within Broadcom. That's going to be focused on ES now. And we'll, <clears throat> we're consolidating to the four major labs, Prague and the three in the U.S. Um, and so, you know, one, one of the things that's been great about this acquisition and it's it actually was another st sticker shock or what have you when we had our one of our initial meetings with Hock Tan, who's the CEO of the company. And we said, hey, we'd like to do a lot of these things. And we list a whole bunch of things. And he's like, all right, great. And Greg Lotko and a couple of my peers, we all looked at each other and we're like, well, what wonder what that means. And he's like, yeah, do it all. Well, it, it included you know, hiring a tremendous number of people. So, um, and I mean tremendous. And so I mean, you can go out and look at LinkedIn or what have you. We have well over, I think I have something like 150 open recs at the moment. Um, but it, it's that kind of investment is fantastic. But of course, it also means you got to spend a decent amount of time 
trying to figure out how you're going to recruit these people, how you're going to bring them on board and integrate them into the teams. So we, you know, we're and we're relocating some people from our India lab to other locations. So you know, there's a bit of energy spent on that. Obviously, um, I spend time working with the team. I just got off of a call, reviewing some of the planning for the next uh, PI or program increment that we'll be doing for a part of our portfolio. Um, I get out and visit the labs, each of them several times a year. Um, but of late, what I've been doing predominantly is sitting on an airplane or being in cities around the world on something we're calling the world tour, where we're going to end up visiting clients in about 40 cities around the world. And the three in Australia were some of the first ones we did where we're going out and telling the story and making sure that clients understand that the acquisition is a tremendous positive for them because it's going to allow us to invest and do more and deliver more value. So, you know, because it's very natural for people to be suspicious of an acquisition. I mean, they can go multiple ways. This one is going in the most positive way I could imagine, but we need to get out and share that story. So a large part of my time, and it's also been a large part of Greg Lotko's time and my peers' time in the last five to six months has been getting out on the road and sharing the, the good news with our clients and, and also soliciting their feedback because you know, while we're hiring tremendously, there's still, you can't do everything. So you still have to prioritize. And so we want to hear from our clients, okay, tell us what you'd like us to do. And we'll factor that into the planning. And then there happen to be a lot of emails every day and a lot of, a lot of other calls. But, you know, that's, that's kind of business as usual. Wow. Well, uh, you must have pretty broad shoulders to carry all that because that sounds like an amazing remit. I'm sorry I missed you when you were here in Australia, but uh, 40 Cities, uh, it sounds like the, uh, the, the, the title of a movie, 40 Cities in 12 Months or something to that effect. But, uh, yeah, I did follow that whole sort of, I guess, early period of the acquisition and, and the various uh, uh, comms that were coming out of the organisation. And, and I was very pleasantly surprised to see that um, this wasn't sort of emerge and, and absorb. This was emerge and grow, and, and it sounds like you know almost explosive growth. Um, but when you look at it from you know from the context of some of the things you're sharing there, it makes so much sense to 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 breathe so much more life into this organisation that had so much capability in the first place. Uh, because I think a lot of people have completely misunderstood that the mainframe never went away. It was always there, ticking away in the background, and it continued to do what it did for a long time, which is just work. And um, and more and more, we, we are effectively now living this world where always on is a reality. You know, we flip up our smartphones, we just expect them to work. We, we, uh, we're not so much worried about just getting a dial tone to make a call anymore. Everything has a dial tone, you know, whether it's... I always think that when I look at these apps and, you know, I, I remember picking up a phone and hearing a dial tone as a kid thinking, oh, wow, it's always there and I can dial anytime I want. And yet I have that same expectation now, decades later, that if I click on an app, it's just going to work, and it's going to work every time. And I, I actually can't remember the last time I had to kind of reboot something or, 
or, or kill an app because it didn't function that basic way. And if I did, I don't really think much about it. Um, and I think this is where a lot of what you're doing now um, has really sort of just bringing that back home to people that, you know, if I book a ticket on an airplane or if I start to do some online banking, um, it generally isn't sort of hybrid cloud sitting out there in some nefarious uh, uh, fairyland world with, uh, you know, ro- uh, rainbow-coloured... Uh, unicorns with butterfly wings that's making it work it's a big piece of iron that's running 24 7 with five nines by default right that's exactly right and you know this is one of the things that i really hope we can change as far as the industry's perception and awareness of the critical role the mainframe serves in virtually everything people do whether it's banking or insurance or retail or government agency functions. I, I like to tell people, you know, if you unplug the mainframes, seriously, the world would shut down from a <laughs> commerce perspective. I mean, and it's just, you know, but people don't know about it because it's they're behind the scenes. They're behind that mobile app. They're behind that web page. They're behind the client-server apps that still, you know, exist in some uh, places. And they're behind the green screen apps that still exist, you know, inside inside companies. So, but, you know, the mainframe is all about continuous, continuous uh, execution. Like you said, five nines, you know, there's one company that, that IBM talked about, and I can't remember the name of it, but that, you know, has not had an outage in over 20 years. Well, that's what people expect. People expect their apps to work. And if the back end of the app that's accessing the data, doing the transaction, you know, representing money moving or a a purchase or what have you, if that's running on a mainframe, well, it's running on a very solid platform. The mainframe's been around for 55 years or so, and I see no reason to think they won't be around uh, 55 years in the future um, because they do that type of work, handling heterogeneous workloads, handling a tremendous amount of I.O. They do it very, very efficiently with high security, high availability, great throughput, and so forth. But the, the one, one of the issues is people don't realize it. You know, yeah. I was at a wedding the other day and, and met this you know, person that the groom knew that I'd never met before. And I mentioned that I was working at Broadcom on mainframe and the guy was like, they still exist. Oh, wow. And, and, and I gave about a 30 second answer, but then I was like, you know, that's unfortunately, um, an issue that we need to continue to address by making it more apparent what heavy lifting the mainframe is doing behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I do this um, monthly thing where uh, different groups around the world, I, I zip around in my own time and do these little briefings to uh, college students or uni students around kind of, you know, the challenges of life. And sometimes they're this whole thing about, you know, where to kick off your career. The others are, you know, what to do when you've got a career path and you need to reinvent yourself. And recently just talked about um, the whole challenge of reinventing yourself regularly to stay current. And one of the questions was, you know, there's a lot of technology challenges coming out. There's a lot of change. You know, where should I, where should I start? And I said, well, you know what, you could do worse than studying on mainframe because you know people think it's been gone for a long time. It was never away, but it's coming back with a vengeance. 
And the whole room just about gasped like, what? And so my entire talk went sideways because I spent the whole time explaining this reality to them. But there's some big challenges facing mainframe teams, and I'd love to dive into this. I mean, you know, when we think about this whole world of mainframe, and we could riff all day on, on, on the topic itself of the big iron, but when we think about the world of that space, you must be facing some significant challenges uh, in, in your own organization, but certainly your clients and the, the ecosystem within those clients. Um, I'd love to dive into some of those challenges facing mainframe teams themselves, you know, sort of old ways of working and the aging uh, workforce themselves and some of the skills and processes and tools they have uh, to sort of deal with legacy-wise and some of the things that are coming up. I mean, there's, you know, I look at a lot of these spaces, you know, and, and often we talk about very big organizations, but more and more I'm seeing smaller organizations wanting that that uptime and capability so they don't have to think about, you know, because uh, there are a lot of companies that have been rushing to the cloud and hybrid cloud models and they're dockerizing X everything and everything's becoming a cloud native and, you know, they're, they're building microservices-based architectures. And, and to me, in many ways, they're just trying to get back to what we've had for a long time on the big iron. And I see these five generational challenges of sort of the baby boomers and Gen X and Gen Y and now Gen Zs coming to the market and millennials across the top. Uh, I mean, there's cultural and behavioral challenges in there. You must see an enormous tsunami almost of, of challenges just facing these mainframe teams themselves, let alone the organizations. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to regress back to 34 years ago when I started at IBM fresh out of university. And I was working on PC DOS, but I was working on a code generator that, among other platforms, uh, produced code that ran on the mainframe. So very early on, I had exposure to mainframe clients and the critical nature of the systems that were running their business. And, you know, as, as my career progressed, and I told you I got into small talk and iterative development and all that, then I got into Eclipse. In fact, a colleague of mine named Jim Amston, he and I proposed taking it open source uh, before we did it. And, you know, we were told we were out of our mind initially, but eventually it turned out to be a good thing. So I was working on distributed technologies for essentially my entire career, but... I was doing it in the context a lot of times of producing something that would be used by mainframe clients. And so I've seen what they, how they do their job, the technologies that they have employed for over three decades now. And the unfortunate situation we find ourselves in now is that too many, and I would say well over half, probably closer to three quarters of mainframe shops are stuck in the 80s or the 90s in, number one, the way in which they work, you know, the processes that they use for, for development, deployment, and so forth. Uh, also, unfortunately, we have not had as many young people, new blood, fresh ideas coming into the workforce in the mainframe space over the last three decades as I think would be healthy. And thirdly, the tooling that is used in these shops also tends to be very old-fashioned. And so 
And then, of course, that is an inhibitor to young people wanting to do this kind of work. So we've sort of got this three-prong set of challenges, and we need to address each of them. We need to be encouraging adoption of agile and lean uh, principles and ways of working and get away from waterfall. We need to continue to encourage young people. And you said you mentioned it. To me, I always like to tell a young person, hey, this is a comparative advantage you can have over you know, 99% of your peers. Because of course you know scripting languages and you know maybe mobile or web development. But if you also know the mainframe, that is a very unique position to be in and you will be valued by the market uh, more than the Me Too uh, type folks. And then, of course, you need to have have our clients embrace the modern tooling that I mentioned to you. I was involved with Eclipse, what was that, 15 years ago. We've, there have been modern tools, and of course, there's a whole lot more now than there were 15 years ago. But there have been you know, there were modern Eclipse-based IDEs for mainframe 15 years ago. Yeah. You know, nowadays you can do the most sophisticated multi-platform CICD pipeline mixing commercial as well as open source tooling uh, that includes the mainframe. So it's not just a mainframe solution. See, we need to get the mainframe out of the out of being a silo. That's not goodness. So all of these challenges are solvable, but it requires people to change. And change, I like to say, our number one, our number one competitor in the mainframe space is inertia. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I was at Poughkeepsie uh, last year, as I'm sure you know, uh, we made a lot of noise about it. I did a, a week uh, behind the scenes in Poughkeepsie, the home of the mainframe, and uh, we did a whole series of things, of podcasts and interviews and whatnot as part of the launch of the the new uh, then ZR14 and then the Rock Hopper 2 and then the um, the ZR1 um, and the yes. whole 19-inch chassis. And got yep. to hang out on the test floor with uh, a number of the amazing people. And um, I, I did a podcast with um, three of the younger kids on the team and, uh, you know, the, the famous uh, mainframe kid, uh, Connor Krakowski, but also a couple of his peers, Will Troutman and Ed Pryor, who are... Uh, not so well known necessarily uh, in social media, but definitely in the in the mainframe world. And it was interesting that uh, you know they were just young guys looking to make a, their way in the world, and they brought such fresh new ideas to just you know well this is just a computer. It's like it's it's got flashing yeah, exactly. lights. I can work with it, right? And I was like, man, I just need to drag you kids around the planet. And you know I probably sound like an old man saying you kids, but um, you know they you know they. They were talking about some really cool, funky things that I would have done as a kid uh, as far as the things they were doing outside of work. But, you know, if you, if you listen to the podcast I did with them, they, um, they just they had such a, a, a really cool, fun way of attacking this big piece of hardware, whether they were hacking the chips and making sure things weren't going to fail or they changed their work processes and so forth. And it was interesting that, you know, uh, hearing them talk about it and then and I had the pleasure of catching up with your, your associate, uh, uh, CJ Solomon, the other day and had him on the show as well, which was great fun. And, in fact, we could have talked for three years. We had so much in common. And here's another fellow who's coming at this thing with a view that, like, well, of course we're going to run open source on it. Of course we're going to run stuff natively. I mean, th this just makes sense, right? Um, and there was a comment that's like it's effectively the world's biggest Linux computer now. 
And it just reminded me, like, you know, when I started working in mainframes as a teenager after school in my spare time, I had the same view. It was like, it was just another big box. It could run code, you know, and... Um, and even back then, I have to laugh that, you know, these days, any coding I do sort of is, you know, it's a Docker native and it's running under Kubernetes and it's in a cloud of some form or some cloud provider platform. And whether it's, um, you know, VirtualBox or something on my laptop or it's a, a public cloud. But then it reminds me that it's like, well, that's kind of, you know, the, a Docker and a virtual machine is an LPAR. And um, people tease me about uh, the fact that mainframes used to run batch jobs and yet I'm scripting batch jobs on Hadoop and Cassandra mm-hmm. and Spark, right? And, uh, yeah. and I have to bite my tongue sometimes going, well, you know, that thing you're running on Hadoop, that's a batch job, right? <laughs> yeah. exactly. You've got a cron job that runs it every couple of hours to tell you what's happening with your uh, shopping cart abandonment. Um, but I think a lot of these things you're talking about with regard to the, the shift to agile versus waterfall and the whole sort of fail and fail fast mentality that sort of DevOps makes possible. I mean, they're just exciting things, but you know, they're not that different from what was being done a long time ago. I think in many ways, it's almost the, the thinking processes behind it and the, the, the cultural shift and behavioral shift inside organizations at the business side, where they can now give themselves permission to do little things and test them. If they fail, it's okay because they learned something new that maybe we didn't have permission to do before. I'm curious to get your thoughts around kind of, you know, I mean, what do we do about these things? I mean, we, we know, I mean, there's a lot of debate about it, but I often say to people, well, yeah, it's a fact that we've got this aging workforce. We need to work along it. But it's also a fact that we can attract the new generation to them. Uh, we can, you know, I mean, most of these things that we talk about, you know, whether it's Linux or whether it's Hadoop and Spark and others, I mean, they run natively now. It's not like it's a struggle to make it happen. And we, can, we have got amazing API access to the back end uh, in the same way we do with cloud. Um, so what do we do? What, what do you think we do about these things? I mean, what are some of the solutions to these whole challenges that we were sort of talking about of that shift from old ways of working to new ways and old tools and processes and skills to new skills? And how do we transition from the you know, aging workforce where there's a lot of good knowledge that needs to be tra- transferred to attracting new blood? Uh, what are your thoughts around the, sort of the, the next phase of making this con- continued sort of success story of, of the big iron that keeps ticking uh, continue to be so. Well, I think you hit on one of the reasons we have inertia, and it's it's the culture, it's the mindset of the people that are responsible for ensuring that the mission critical systems do not go down. And so, historically, the way you ensured that systems stayed up and running and did not fail was to, you know, test like crazy, have very rigorous gates to pass through, but generally manual gates. Okay, of course, there was testing, but a lot of it was done manually. But it was just a mindset that, okay, and we're going to have upgrade windows four times a year or twice a year, or maybe a really radical company would do it once a month or something. And so the, this, if, if you, you know, buy into the DevOps uh, philosophy, which I do 100%, and I was running a DevOps for enterprise systems at IBM for the last decade before I left, the, the notion that, you know, a small change along with 
a substantial amount of automation, be it automating the deployment, automating the testing, you know, automating promotion through test stages, all this business, and finally release into production. Now, in the mainframe, that might be a bridge too far just right yet. But understanding that actually making a much smaller change is way less risky than batching up a hundred changes and releasing it every three or six months. So we've got to continue educating the mainframe community that it's actually less risky. It is a more responsible way to do what they're entrusted to do, which is to support the business. And the business increasingly requires more nimbleness, more frequent changes. You can do that while improving quality, improving your uptime, not having outages due to you know, some manual testing failing to catch something that if you'd automate it, you could run a hundred times more and do it, you know, a thousand times faster, you would actually catch. So I think number one, we have to do more in educating our clientele about the fact that DevOps is not something to be shunned and think it's only for the born on the web companies. In fact, there's many, many examples of large companies that have been very successful at embracing DevOps principles and practices in the mainframe space and of course integrating it with what they're doing on other platforms. But like I said, that's not the norm. And so we, we need to continue uh, promoting that. Part of doing that, and it's sort of the Trojan horse approach, but is to ensure that people with new ideas get infused into the teams. And so if if you leave your team stagnant and everybody that's on the team's been working on it for 30 or 40 years, it's going to be hard to get them to change. Whereas if you bring in some recent graduates or people who are making a change mid-career but who've been trained in agile principles and modern tooling, those people can be change agents internal to the team. And, and of course, a way to make this type of work attractive to the new generation of mainframers is to ensure that they can do the work the way they would expect to do it for any other platform, for any other production or execution platform. And so that means the tools interface for the developers, for the system administrators, for the DBAs, for the security czars, needs to be the same. We, we sometimes use the term same as cloud, but you know, let's just say same as any other platform, which means there's you know, web UIs, there's command line interfaces there, you know, you can integrate things because there are APIs that allow you to integrate, you know, uh, a mainframe based tool along with, with Jenkins, or you can manage the source and with Git, you know, we've done some things like that to both with brand new offerings, but also with, offerings that have existed for 30 years, like our Endeavor 
source code management system, which is the dominant one in the mainframe space by far. Well, we did a, a Git integration. So the way you can think about it is you, you work with Git. That's what everybody knows if they're coming from any other platform. You work with Git, but then we're doing synchronization in the background between uh, Bitbucket and Endeavor. So it's still leveraging Endeavor for doing the builds on the platform, for doing the deployments on the platform, but it's the interface is Git. And we have a Jenkins plugin for Endeavor, so it can be integrated into your CICD pipeline. So that's an example of where you can, you need, and we have chosen to modernize existing tools because the solution sometimes is a brand new tool. We've done a lot of brand new things. And when you were talking to CJ, or Sujay Solomon, I'm quite sure you were talking about Brightside and the Zoe project and all that. Indeed. Well, that was a, yeah, that was a grassroots <clears throat> created by uh, some of my team in Pittsburgh that are, you can just say, uh, the millennial type, and I call them the minimalists because they, they want the most minimal, minimally intrusive tool to get the job done, which might just be command line instructions. They just want to kick off something from the command line. Well, they came up with this thing. It's a brand new solution, makes it very easy to integrate and drive anything on the mainframe that has a REST interface. And there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, IBM has ZOSMF for doing all kinds of Z commands and, you know, REST interfaces to it. We made, you know, exposed REST interfaces to Endeavor. So you have brand new things like Brightside and Zoe, but then you have to also make sure that the tools that people are using and have been for years and years and that you're not going to replace anytime soon are also usable by the new crowd. And so you kind of fake it out a little bit. And like this get interface or facade in front of Endeavor is is such an example. You know, the, the people who have been using the standard interfaces to Endeavor for 30 years, keep on keeping on. But for the new folks, you have to know that's not what they want to do. They want to do things in a modern way. So, you know, we have to invest to make sure that the mainframe doesn't look any different from a user's point of view. The mainframe needs to differentiate itself in the qualities of execution. That's its unique value. It should not be unique in the way in which you develop for it or deploy to it or manage it. No, they're all very good points. And one of the key things that uh, comes to mind with that is a conversation I have with every single time I'm in a boardroom and someone hands me a whiteboard marker and asks me to perform Jedi mind tricks with it. I keep saying to them, what kind of business are you? Because that's the kind of business you need to focus on being, not being an IT shop. And so whether it's a bank or transport, logistics or aviation or whatever the case might be, retail, you know, I said, well, if you're a bank, keep being a bank. Focus on that. Be the best bank you can. But don't be an IT shop. You know, don't, right. don't try and reinvent the wheel. And we've been seeing this for decades, over and over and over. We keep relearning the same silly thing. Uh, and you know, people often say Einstein said it, but he didn't. But um, there's a phrase that goes that you know, to do the same thing three or more times, expect a different outcome is a definition of insanity. Um, yep. Poor old Einstein's misquoted with it. I can't remember who came up with it. But um, I think this is the thing that we're seeing now that you know, when you talked about um, – 
you know, API access to different platforms and, and now the mainframe sort of has all this. People forget that when we talk about whether it's hybrid or private or public cloud, that's an API as well. Where, you know, whether it's VirtualBox on my laptop um, and stand shedding a VM that I can deploy Kubernetes and Docker on, whether it's a third-party cloud, whether it's you know, AWS or Google uh, Cloud or, or Azure, or it's an OpenStack environment somewhere, um, they're APIs. You know, I, I don't reach out and physically plug things in and hit buttons. There are APIs requesting things to stand up and instantiate, grab some memory and network and IP addresses and routes and create a thing. And and I think often I say to that people, I draw this picture of an environment, go, you know, where would this run? And they're like, well, we might run it on OpenStack. We might run it on AWS. And I said, well, it could run exactly the same way on a mainframe. It's just a bunch of APIs asking to do things. Um, and I, yeah, well, Sujay and I had a great conversation about Zoe. And what was interesting is that it circled back to this whole topic of, as you said, you know, and, and I don't think, I mean, millennials definitely are known for this. I mean, modern developers, but I, I remember decades ago as a coder, as assistance programmer, I used to cut characters out of things. I was looking for ways to pull one word, or one phrase, or one line, or one character out of stuff to minimize, to get to the least amount of stuff I had to codify to make things work. So I think we're seeing a, a re, re-emergence of this minimalization thing. So we probably had bloatware for a while. Uh, we had a hiccup with Y2K in the middle where people just threw code at things to fix dates and times. Um, but I think we are at this exciting uh, uh, you know, tipping point that's already happened in my mind that we're focusing back on the business problems. We're focusing, focusing back on how to leverage the technology. We're not so obsessed with the technology anymore. But it is interesting that people forget sometimes that, that it's a mainframe environment at the back end and that we're not having to put 2,000 computers together to make a cluster to get five nines. Uh, running Hadoop, we, we can just put it on a big piece of iron that already does it by default. You mentioned you're doing a, a bunch of uh, hiring and you're doing a world tour, which I'd love to get into, because that kind of leads me to my, my next question around sort of, I guess, what Broadcom's commitment to the mainframe is. And, and you know, CA's uh, sort of legacy and history around that space is a no-brainer. Broadcom, obviously, with the acquisition, has, has raised a number of questions and, and they've been very positively answered to, to the best of everyone's knowledge so far. Um, what can you share about the ongoing commitment that Broadcom's making to mainframes in general? Particularly, I'd love to hear more about the world tour you're running with these uh, 40 cities you're visiting, and, and you, you talked about hiring people at, at a great pace. I'd love to get a bit more insight into that whole world tour and, and particularly the hiring uh, uh, explosion that's happening behind that to support that growth. Yeah, so we're in these world tours, we always like to show a couple of quotes from our CEO in his Broadcom third quarter earnings. Uh, This was even before the acquisition closed. He said, hey, we're going to double down on the mainframe. And then in the, after the, or part of the fourth quarter earnings, now this was like a month after the acquisition closed, he made another similar statement saying, you know, we're going to see tremendous promise with the mainframe and we're going to increase our investments. Well, these are, you know, I, I do play some poker every now and then, and the fact of the matter is we're not literally doubling down. Uh, I think you know what that means in a yeah. gambling bet. <laughs> but but it, it, in the spirit, we are. But then you say, well, what does that really mean? Well, we've broken it down into people, or this has to do with hiring, solutions, skills, and I've talked touched on skills, and then relationships. So I'll start with the relationships because that's where the world tour uh, thing plays. We want to, so we're going to uh, approximately 40 cities around the world in the, 
in the first three quarters of the year or the fiscal year broke our fiscal year starts the beginning of November. Um, I've been to 12 so far, probably do another 10 or 12 before the end, but it's being shared with, it's either Greg Lotko, our GM and SVP or me or one of my two peers, one that runs strategy and product management, Jeff Henry, you talked to him a little bit ago, or Vikas Sinha, who runs all of our customer facing things like services, support, education, pre-sales, all that. So it we're committing to get out and re-emphasize the importance we place on having personal relationships with our clients. And, and I mean this, it, of course, our sales force have relationships with the client. Their job is to be out with the clients on a daily or weekly basis. But we want that same relationship. Clearly, we can't be out with every single client on a weekly basis, but we want them to know who we are, and we want to hear directly, unfiltered from them what they think we should be doing, be it on our DevOps portfolio or our IT operations and intelligent ops portfolio or our security or database a solutions portfolio. We want to hear it. We also want to share directly with them what we're planning to do, why we're positive, let them feel our energy. So we're doing this. And so far, I've been very pleased with the interactions that we've had with our, our clients around the world. Um, back to the people thing. Software development is all about, I mean, my budget is 90 some percent going to compensate the engineers and architects. And so if you're saying you're investing and you're a software development business, uh, if you're not hiring, then I'm not quite sure what investment means. Well, we are hiring. And as I said, you can go look at LinkedIn or other places and just see how many uh, open job recs we have. We've already hired about 100 people into my group. Either they're already on board or they have a start date already identified. And we're doing this also, uh, interestingly, or at least I think it's interesting. We're doing it in Prague, but we're also doing it in our three labs in the United States. And so it's, you know, what one of the things we're doing with the hiring is we're hiring for new initiatives, but we're also hiring to shore up some of our established teams that, to be perfectly honest, you know, were depleted in prior years in order to support the new things that we've done. We've come out with like half a dozen brand new products in the last three years. Well, if you're not growing your staff and yet you're going to form, you know, three new scrum teams to do this thing called mainframe operational intelligence or this thing called data content discovery that, you know, finds sensitive data on the mainframe, where are they going to come from? 
Well, you're going to pull them from other teams. So some of our existing teams were approaching critical mass, or maybe in a, in a few cases, I would say they were below critical mass. So we're shoring up those teams. And so this is good for our clients, but also think about how great it is for the morale of my teams, because we're showing that we're investing not just in some bright, shiny new thing, but we're also investing in this product that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of clients use, but that has, you know, it might right now might be, you know, 50% of the staff that we had five years ago. So we're doing it across the board and I, I just think it's a great story. And of course, anybody listening to this, if you're interested, you know, we're, we're hiring. And so that's a great thing to be able to say. Um, on the solution front, we do intend to continue making available approximately two major offerings each year. It might be a brand new thing like MOI was, and MOI is our mainframe operational intelligence, and so about using, I know you talked with Jeff Henry about it, it's about using uh, machine learning to detect patterns in operational data in order to help avoid outages or get to a remedy much more quickly. Okay, so we might do something brand new like that, or we may do something of, of a major nature to an existing product akin to what I described for the Endeavor integrations with Git and Jenkins and so forth. So, of course, you know, at the end of the day, when we're out talking to our clients about this, that's going to be what they care about. That's going to be the value that they will see as a result of our investment. I mean, it, you know, they're probably like, great, I'm glad you're able to hire people. But at the end of the day, if those people don't deliver new value, then they don't care. So we have to make sure we continue to deliver new value and, but not just brand new things, also shoring up and making major enhancements to our existing ones. And then the final areas around skills, and I know we, touched on this is one of the big problem areas or one of the challenges we have in the mainframe space. We're doing a few things. Number one, we brought in all of the people having to do with mainframe that had quite honestly been siloed into a number of different divisions or underneath different general managers in CA. We pulled them all in into our organization underneath my colleague Vikas Sinha. So, you know, we went out and basically cherry-picked people that we wanted. And on day one, we had added like 50 people or something like that. And so we, this gives us flexibility to do the right thing for clients. You know, if you have a separate services organization that's getting measured on their P&L and, and, and billing rates and, and billing percentages and all utilization rates, all that, and then you have your customer support people or pre-sales who are not going to be charging for it, it's very difficult to mix and match, even if the skills that you really need reside in the other group. Well, now we have the flexibility to do whatever we think 
makes the most sense and and mix and match and and I think you know again the proof will be in the pudding but I think we're going to be able to support our clients far better in this regard because of bringing them all under under Vicas. Wow. And then one final thing I'll just say is we're we talked about making the mainframe more attractive to young people. You do it with modern tools, you do it by getting the clients to to think about using more modern ways of working, but you also need to help with demonstrating to the clients that it's possible. You know, there's a lot of FUD out there about, well, they're not teaching COBOL in universities. Well, guess what? You know, I did not learn C code in university, and yet when I joined IBM, they gave me a Kernigan and Ritchie, which was the you know, C code Bible. I still I have it. my original one. <laughs> yeah, I read it and I wrote 3,000 lines of code when, as a summer intern. You know, if you're a programmer, you can learn a language. You can learn to be a, a datacom uh, sysadmin. You can learn to run sysview or opsmbs as a system administrator. You can do it. You just have to give the people a little bit of training. So we've got this new initiative called the Vitality Program that we're piloting this year in North America initially and with two of our database products, IDMS and Datacom, first. But we're piloting it just like you would any other MVP type thing. Okay, MVP is not just about code. It's about anything you're trying new. So we're going to bring in mid-career people as well as you know university graduates we're going to train them for three months and then we're going to loan them to our clients for up to nine months for free to demonstrate to our clients how possible it is i'm not going to say easy but i'll say how possible it is to train a new mainframer and then at the end of that you know, nine-month period with the client. If the customer wants to hire them, we don't want a finder's fee. We don't want anything. We're happy for the client to hire them. Now, clearly, we're not going to be able to solve all the staffing needs for all of our clients around the world, but we're trying to demonstrate the art of the possible here. And this is just, you know, one example. We've had tremendous interest in this. Of course, you know, as soon as we say it, they're like, well, what about for Endeavor? What about for Ops MVS? Blah, blah, blah. You know, yes, we will evaluate extending it, but we're going to pilot it first, see how it works, um, see what we learn as we go through it, and then, and then maybe expand it. But we've got to do something because right now, one stat, I uh, I use in the talks that I give is right now there are 7% of mainframers under 30 and 29% over 60. And I have a little picture of Gandalf typing on his Mac. Well, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's incumbent upon all of us in the industry, both the, the, the ISVs like us and the, and the clients themselves to address this because, you know, as, as every calendar day passes, 
you know, people continue to age like they do for any other technology and all that. But this is uh, something we need to embrace and, and also let people know it is not an unsolvable problem. Indeed. So, but, yeah. Well, you know, uh, my dear mate, Bill Kostenko, uh, is evidence that mainframes uh, never die and go away. They just uh, age gracefully. But um, I had to laugh when you uh, mentioned that uh, a lot of people aren't familiar with Cobalt. It's one of my favorite things to do on Twitter is if someone makes a comment, I uh, have a GNU Cobalt installed on my Mac, and I generally get kids to sit down in a room and we do little workshops uh, on languages. And I said, let's, let's write some Cobalt. I get them to write a Hello World Cobalt um, program. And uh, usually takes about 10 minutes to install it and about 30 seconds to teach them how to cut and paste a, a template with you know, ident identification division and program ID and data division, procedure division, yep. and away they go. And do a display, you know, Hello World, and they go, oh, my God, and then compile and it runs. I'm like, there you go. It's your first Cobalt program. Um, That's right. Now, now let's look at solving a problem. And so often I do a little tweet where I do a little Hello World and a screenshot of a Cobalt program and show them compiling it, and people are gobsmacked going, oh, my God, you run Cobalt? I was like, yeah, on my laptop. Um, exactly. Well, look, some amazing insights there. And I, I, you know, I, I think we could talk all day on each of those individual points, particularly uh, the latter there. Um, but uh, as a final question for you, uh, in a speed dating format, and I, I, I love to play on this idea that you, you I think you mentioned you were at a wedding was, uh, and, and someone asked you what you did and you gave them a 30 second response on uh, kind of what uh, you did in mainframe. But um, in speed dating format, if I was to ask you to, uh, as a final question, to, to gaze into a virtual crystal ball and sort of give us a, a sense uh, in brief of where we are in the next three to five years. I mean, with all of this in mind, with some of these challenges facing the mainframe teams and the businesses supported by them, and some of the things you talked about with regard to sort of you know the shift from aging uh, methodologies and processes and procedures and tools to sort of some of the new agile formats, and the the cultural shift and thinking that businesses need to make uh, to sort of realise that some of the stuff that we're talking about never actually went away. It's just it's always been there, and we need to readapt re to it. Um, if you were to gaze into a virtual crystal ball for a couple of seconds, I mean, what's over the horizon in the next three to five years? Where are we? Uh, if you if you were to give a speed dating answer, what would it sound like? Well, the first thing is, I do believe the all the sort of hype around hybrid IT is actually uh, legitimate, where the mainframe is participating in a cloud or obviously with mobile and web. But I think this hybrid uh, multi-technology, multi-platform topology is the future. And I am hopeful, but I actually believe there are some positive signs out there that the there will be a resurgence in the appreciation for the role the mainframe plays. And some of the things that make me hopeful are like the Zoe project. You know, this was not Broadcom doing something on its own or IBM or Rocket. It was the collection of IBM, Broadcom, and Rocket collectively going out and creating the initial contribution for the very first open source project for ZOS. And of course, just like we did with Eclipse years ago and like, you know, all open source projects, it's open to participation for the broader ecosystem. It's opening up and showing the mainframe in a new, open, more accessible light. So I'm hopeful that 
that's going to change the narrative and the the fud around you know this closed siloed proprietary system goes away because you know it's obviously put out there in some commercial interest by others to to downplay the value i think uh, we just have to demonstrate it's it has apis and like you said it can look like any other platform so i'm hopeful that that changes i do i hear a lot of talk about and i've done a good bit of reading i've given a few talks on blockchain i'm certainly no deep expert i've done a bit of reading on quantum computing and all this i think all of those things will likely progress in fact i very much hope they progress i think blockchain can be quite revolutionary but none of these things threaten the core values that the mainframe delivers you know yeah you need to compute this thing that quantum can solve in 5 seconds that would take you know 500 years using more conventional uh, techniques. But at the end of the day, you still have to record something in a database. Uh, you, 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 you need to do I.O. These are things that the mainframe will continue to do. And I just, uh, I am hopeful that, you know, integrating blockchain with the mainframe. So again, the transaction happens on the mainframe, but you record it in the blockchain. I think these are, there's many, many advances that are, extremely promising, but I don't see these as being threats to the mainframe because I think as long as we keep the mainframe open and as long as we make it, keep it accessible and improve the accessibility to it, then it's relevance for the businesses and government agencies in the world will be preserved. And I certain, I certainly hope that's true. Wow. Well, I, I'm with you on that, and and uh, I like your comment about the quantum computer. I, I I'm a big fan of quantum, have been for my whole life. But one of the things I tend to say to people is, um, you know, we've had the connection machine, we've had uh, Cray computers, and and now we've got quantum technology coming along. And and you know, we, we generally didn't run spreadsheets on the connection machine or or Cray's. Um, I, th I think quantum computing is going to go the same way. It's, it's effectively going to become a big GPU that we can plug in and solve instant right. problems for things. But I'm definitely not going to run a, a web browser on the thing. Um, and, and so, no, you're absolutely, you're bang on the money with all of those things that, you know, um, as I said earlier, I think a lot of companies just need to remember what their core business is, what their core function is and what their market is and where they're at and look at the best tools that they can get available. Well, Hayden, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for making time available. And I know you've had a crazy day and you probably need to get back to that. Uh, but it's been an absolute pleasure to get to know more about you personally and, and, and certainly your role and, and your amazing insights into some of these challenges facing the whole mainframe world in general, in particular the teams and, and where we see it going. And congratulations on this whole uh, transition uh, into the Broadcom world and uh, the ongoing commitment you're making to mainframe. Well, thanks a lot, Des. It's been great talking with you.